You're listening to Short Run, WBUR's home for special, limited, long-form and narrative audio series from across Boston's NPR station. WBUR Podcasts, Boston. From here and now in WBUR Podcasts, it's The Great Wager. I'm Scott Tong. You are listening to part two in this series, so if you're in the wrong place, stop and zip back to episode one. Okay, so previously on The Great Wager, President Nixon and his advisor Henry Kissinger finally connect with the Chinese with an assist from, well, some fashion models in Warsaw. So after decades of silence, the two sides are ready to talk. Not publicly, though. We're talking secret meetings, stolen documents, disguises, and that's all on the American side. Here's the second chapter in our story. My dad worked in the White House between 1971 and 1972. It was a 24-7 job. I had occasion to go see him sometimes on weekends, sometimes during weekdays, because it was the only chance we had to connect. That's John Huntsman. A lot of people know him from running to be the Republican nominee in the 2012 presidential election. But he's long been a character in Washington politics and served as ambassador to China as well as to Russia. And in this story, Huntsman is an 11-year-old kid who happened to be hanging out at his dad's workplace, the White House. I walked into Henry Kissinger's office, and there was uh, busy work taking place. Bags were being uh, packed. Dr. Kissinger said, would you mind, young man, carrying my bag out to the driveway? It was a serious leather rectangular bag that uh, clearly was loaded for business. As we got to the car, I kind of sheepishly said, where are you going? And he said, "Uh, young man, don't tell anyone, but I'm going to China. Henry Kissinger is going where no American official has gone before, communist China. I'm Jane Perlez, and this is The Great Wager, how Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger made friends with China 50 years ago, and how it's all falling apart. In order to secretly smuggle Kissinger into China, the Americans need a friendly country to help them. They land on Pakistan. That's a country that gets along with China and the United States. Their diplomats are discreet, and they will go along with Nixon and Kissinger's fixation with secrecy. Remember, if the American press or the right wing in Congress get wind of the friendship with China, they'll blast Nixon as a communist sympathizer and blow it all up. And the trip will be over before it even starts. Nixon feels this relationship is crucial to keeping the Soviets at bay in the Cold War. He also thinks that putting pressure on the Soviets will help end the war in Vietnam. And he's getting impatient at what he feels is slow progress. Nixon tells Kissinger in April 1971, We're playing for very high stakes and we have very little time left and we can't fiddle around. Nixon sees himself as the big man, so he really wants this relationship to happen. He feels he spent his life on the outside of the intellectual elite and opening up China will go down in history. Finally, in May 1971, the White House gets an important letter via Pakistan inviting an American envoy to Beijing. Kissinger's the man. He'll go. He's Nixon's choice. 
Kissinger's going because he and Nixon are only telling a handful of aides about the trip. Kissinger is a crucial first step in arranging a meeting between Nixon and China's leader, Mao Zedong. But he's no China expert. He spent most of his career at Harvard concentrating on Europe. He would later own up to this on the late-night television show with Dick Cavett. I knew nothing about China. That's a great qualification for a secret mission, but it happens to be true. Kissinger's figured out that he's going to go to China via Pakistan, but he needs help in how to actually do it. He's actually got the perfect person to help him. A crusty former FBI agent named Joe Farland, who at this time is the ambassador to Pakistan. In order to get Farland's help, Kissinger has to personally tell him what the trip to China is about. He just can't do it over the phone, because this is secret. So Farland flies from Pakistan to Los Angeles, where Kissinger has arranged for a private jet to take him to Palm Springs. Being a former FBI agent, Farland tries to figure out where Kissinger got this jet. He notices that the ashtrays have a familiar name on them, a name belonging to one of Kissinger's many celebrity pals. Fly me to the moon. Let me swing among the stars. None other than Frank Sinatra. When Farland gets to Palm Springs, Kissinger is in full vacation mode. He's out on the patio, short sleeves, drink in hand. Farland would later recall their conversation in an oral history. And I said, Henry, I've come halfway around this damn earth, and I don't know why. He said, I want you to put me into China. I said, I don't think that's very funny, Henry. He said, it's not funny. So Farland helps Kissinger come up with a plan to sneak from Pakistan to China without alerting the press. He figures out a flight for Kissinger. It's over the Himalayas, just four and a half hours, and he figures out a disguise, nothing fancy, by the way, a fedora and sunglasses. They were so damn secret, I don't know whether they even talk to each other sometimes. Nobody knows about this trip. Farland's told that he can't even tell his boss, the Secretary of State. Kissinger and Nixon want the bare minimum of people to know. And then right before Kissinger is set to leave, something huge happens. A historic government leak. This weekend, portions of a highly classified Pentagon document came to light for all the world to see. The Pentagon Papers, a detailed account exposing the secrets of U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. It mostly implicates prior administrations. But a government leak is a government leak. And this is just what Kissinger and Nixon fear the most. They go ballistic. I just start right at the top and fire some people. I mean, whoever, whatever department it came out of, I'd fire the top guy. According to people in the Oval Office, Kissinger slams his hand down on a table. To Kissinger and Nixon, this is proof that members of their own government can't be trusted. And foreign governments, including China, will think America can't be trusted at all. After several weeks of intense studying and plotting, Kissinger is set to go. He tells the press and other people in the White House, this is just a routine tour to Asia. Doesn't say anything about China, goes to a couple of countries, then he lands in Pakistan. There, he feigns a stomachache. 
He says he needs a few days to recuperate. This buys him the time he needs to get to China undetected. A Pakistani diplomat drives Kissinger to the airport at 3.30 a.m. for the flight to Beijing. It's pitch dark. The diplomat doesn't even trust his own chauffeur to drive Kissinger. So instead of a government limo, he takes his teenage son's VW bug and stuffs Kissinger in the back. When Kissinger's security detail gets on the plane, there are four Chinese people in the front cabin. One of the American Secret Service agents even goes for his gun. But they avoid a shootout. The plane takes off with Kissinger on board. He gets to Beijing without anyone from the media knowing. When he lands, it's morning. It's hot and sweaty weather. Summertime. Kissinger is starry-eyed. 600-year-old palaces, perfectly symmetrical gardens. Kissinger is impressed, he tells colleagues later, when he's served caviar for breakfast. So it's one of those few experiences you have when you are an adult which have some of the quality of childhood about them, that everything is totally new and everything you saw was, was an experience you hadn't had before. The first thing Kissinger finds out when he lands is that the Chinese have been upset about something. They've been insulted by Nixon's insistence on secrecy. Is he ashamed to be dealing with China, they ask? But they get over it. Kissinger meets with Premier Zhou Enlai. Kissinger's skeptical of Zhou. Zhou is, after all, the second-in-command to the hardline chairman, Mao Zedong. But in the end, Kissinger's totally charmed. In fact, Zhou Enlai was ideologically very hostile to us. And had he lived and in the long evolution of history, in 20 years we might again find ourselves on opposite sides. At that particular moment, he was a man of extraordinary intelligence, one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. The talks go surprisingly well. Kissinger entices the Chinese by telling Zhou that he will share information about the Soviets that will help the Chinese with their border struggle. There are sticking points, though. The big one is Taiwan, the island off mainland China, that the communists claim is theirs. Nothing is decided on Taiwan, except to put it on the back burner. Kissinger tells the Chinese what they want to hear. He even suggests that history may be on the side of China's claim for the island, something that's totally at odds with American policy. And the Americans get nowhere on Vietnam. After 17 hours, the Chinese and the Americans agree. Mao and Nixon, the big men, can meet. They'll make the announcement simultaneously. This will be the historic moment Nixon has been waiting for. Kissinger sends a message home. Eureka, success. Not everyone is going to be happy about this announcement. The Pentagon brass is definitely unhappy with the new ties with China. Nixon and Kissinger have shut the Pentagon and the State Department out of the China trip completely. So the Pentagon plants a spy, a Navy yeoman on Kissinger's plane home from China. The yeoman steals notes from Kissinger's briefcase while he's sleeping. Nixon is pretty mad when he's briefed on the leak later that year. He's saying, can I ask how in the name of God do we have a yeoman having access to documents of that type? Luckily for Nixon, the content of what the yeoman stole never becomes public but it shows how the American government is split internally. 
Pentagon versus White House, about a relationship with China. There will be rocky waters ahead. Finally, Richard Nixon can tell everybody his big secret. He announces on live television that he'll go to China. Good evening. I have requested this television time tonight to announce a major development in our efforts to build a lasting peace in the world. The news goes out simultaneously in very different contexts in China and in the United States. Americans see Nixon on color TV. As I have pointed out on a number of occasions over the past three years, there can be no stable and enduring peace without the participation of the People's Republic of China and its 750 million people. In China, most people learn about it in the People's Daily, the Communist Party newspaper, and on the radio. There's so much surprise, so much shock. Korea found the news shocking, and nationalist China was utterly dismayed. Now there will be a rush to get on the bandwagon to stay even with or ahead of the United States in warming up to communist China. To Nixon, it's a huge win. He splurges on a rare French wine with his staff at a Hollywood restaurant. It's the kind of coup he hopes to go down into history for. He's uncharacteristically elated. Nixon's right. The announcement will go down in history. Five decades later, here's what John Huntsman would be thinking about in our interview. The trepidation the great French conqueror Napoleon Bonaparte felt for getting involved in China. And how Kissinger and Nixon flew in the face of that warning. In hindsight, as I've learned more about the subject matter and lived it and breathed it, all I can say is 50 years ago, you know, Nixon decided to fundamentally ignore Napoleon's advice to let China sleep. For when it wakes, it will astonish the world. But in 1971, the deal isn't sealed yet. The Chinese and Americans still don't totally trust each other. And the trip isn't for many months. There's plenty of time for the Chinese to change their minds. The Great Wager is brought to you by Here and Now and WBUR Podcasts. Our series was reported and narrated by me, Jane Perlez, and produced by Grace Tatter. Editorial direction from Scott Tong and Jeb Sharp. Sound designed by Paul Vikas and engineered by Mike Moschetto. Our executive producer is Ben Brock Johnson. Ben Brock Johnson.